This is a Hot Pie Media Original. In sport, losing is part of it, right? Taking a beating is part of it. But what what matters is not that we fail, it's how we kind of see and respond to that. And if we can see things as failure as a challenge to improve ourselves instead of a threat at our uh, security or our ego, then that's the place we want to be. Hi, I'm Eric Corum, and this is The Blueprint. I've spent my life helping Olympic gold medalists, NFL and NCAA athletes be the best at their craft. Now I'm taking that experience and translating it into your life. This podcast is for busy professionals and household CEOs who care deeply about their family, career, and their health. There's an ocean of content to wade through, but I do the heavy lifting for you and distill cutting edge science, leadership, and life skills into simple tactics optimized for your lifestyle and goals. Steve Magnus is a world-renowned expert on performance. He's the co-author of Peak Performance, The Passion Paradox, a guide to going all in, finding success, and discovering the benefits of an unbalanced life, and the science of running. Collectively, his books have sold more than a quarter million copies in print, ebook, and audio formats. Magnus has served as a consultant on mental skills development for professional sports teams, including some of the top teams in the NBA. He has also coached numerous professional athletes to the Olympics and world championship level. In this episode, we discuss how to find your passion, the dangers of going all in, developing mastery, and the myth of mental toughness. It's time for the It's Freaking Awesome Story of the Week, brought to you by The Festive Kitchen. Every week, we highlight stories of people who went above and beyond and thought about someone else before themselves. Now that is freaking awesome. This week, we're featuring Linda Brown, a Missouri woman dedicated to making her hometown a city where no one sleeps outside. Linda, a realtor in Springfield, Missouri, began her mission by organizing a drop-in shelter where homeless citizens could eat, shower, do laundry, and socialize. But she and her husband, David, wanted more. In 2018, Linda and David raised almost $5 million in their community and opened Eden Village, a community of 31 tiny homes built to provide permanent housing for the chronically homeless. By February of 2019, all of the homes were occupied. Now, plans for additional villages are in the works. Eden Village 2 will house up to 24 residents and Eden Village 3 will house up to 80. Over the next six years, Linda hopes to have five villages across Springfield, housing hundreds of homeless people across the city. In 2020, Linda was honored with the Good Neighbor Award by the National Association of Realtors. It was well-deserved and Linda should be proud of her freaking awesome work. Hey everyone, I have one ask for you today. I've been studying the growth playbooks of the best podcast and the number one thing to grow your show is through show reviews. This takes less than 60 seconds and it's critical for podcasters like myself. It would mean the world to me if you could head to the Apple Podcast app and leave a review on the show. My goal is to go from 60 to 150 reviews in the next two months. And with your help, I believe we can do this. But before we get to my interview with Steve, right now, I just want to ask you something. Tell me if you know this story. You go out and spend hundreds of dollars on a fancy wearable device, hoping that it will help you achieve your wellness goals. And then it ends up in the sock drawer. 
Sound familiar? Or how about this? You follow those cookie cutter clickbait health recommendations like walking 10,000 steps a day and all you get is anxious and demotivated when life gets in the way and you can't hit those magic numbers. Well, it's time for an evolution of expectation and results. And that's where AIM 7 comes in. AIM 7 sets busy people free to live their values every day by building lifelong healthy habits. We use the health data from your Apple Watch to create small, scientific, personalized recommendations for whatever you want to do. Sleep better, increase your energy, reduce your stress, or lose weight. If you're ready to finally unlock the power of your Apple Watch data, then go to www.aim7.com. That's A-I-M-7.com to get early and free access to our exclusive program. AIM 7 starts small and it starts with you. Your health data, your values to get to your thriving life. But now it's time to lean in and learn from the best. Well, Steve, welcome to the show. Excited to have you on today. Uh, Thanks so much for having me. Can't wait. You've written a number of excellent books, Peak Performance, The Science of Running, and this latest book, The Passion Paradox, um, really has caught me at the right time. (laughs) And I really want to dig into this today because I think... um, I read something recently about the great resignation. I don't know if you've heard about this, but like since COVID people have been resigning their jobs, like in mass numbers. And I think people were given the opportunity during COVID to really think about like what matters to them. And so this whole book is about passion and like finding your passion and how to pursue your passion and maybe some good rules of thumb around how you seek that passion out. But let's just start with, how do you define passion? Yeah, you know, that's a good observation. I actually noted that 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 great resignation as well. Um, to me, passion is a fuel. And what I mean by that is it is like the jet fuel that can drive us to, you know, accomplish great things. It can also drive us to, you know, some not so good paths, like for instance, addiction um, or obsession. Um, Passion is this fuel that gets us hooked on the chase of performing or working or moving forward in whatever we're pursuing. And I think that is the key distinction there on uh, what passion is. Mm. I love how you said it's like jet fuel. Uh, cause just like jet fuel, it can burn out. It, it, exactly. <laughs> it, exactly. It's, it, it's like this stuff that can be incredible because it, it's just got all this energy behind it. Right. And people who accomplish amazing things like are often extremely passionate and it makes sense because they've got this fuel behind them, mm-hmm. but it burns, burns hot, can burn out can push us in the wrong direction. Hmm. So it's, it's, you just, you know, we're used to thinking of passion as like, Oh yeah, this is a great thing. And it is, it can be, but it's also got this other side of it where you just have to be, you got to be aware and careful of uh, how you're utilizing and where it's pushing you. When I think of passion, I think of like romantic love and you think about like you pour gasoline on a fire to just, right. But what you really want with a, like I've been married for going, going to be 13 years. I know you're married as well. And when you're in a committed relationship, you really want coals that are like really hot because 
that it's not like this out of control flame, but it burns for a long time. Uh, something I found interesting in your book is like the the evolution of the word passion. You want to talk about that for a second? Yeah, I, I love that analogy you just gave. I think I'm going to steal that. Uh, because it's, it's consider funny. it stolen. <laughs> but yeah, so it's it's interesting. You know, when um, I set out to look at and write this book on passion, I'm sitting there thinking like, oh, yeah, I know what passion is. Like, I know what passion is from a love standpoint and pursue your passion and all those things. Um, but it was fascinating. We I talked to um, a linguist and a professor of linguistics and he was kind of like, you, you know where passion comes from? I was like, oh yeah, you know, passion of the Christ. I know religion enough. And he was like, no, dig, dig into this, see the word, how it evolved. And it's really fascinating because about the first thousand years of passion or the, the original word passio from it, it was center, centered around suffering and specifically suffering in Jesus and Christ. Mm -hmm. Right. And then it was interesting. It moved instead of just suffering on Jesus to suffering in general. So it was a negative connotation to the word. Mm. And it wasn't until, you know, um, around Shakespeare's time where the, you know, the genius playwright comes in and says, you know what, I'm going to tie this to, you know, something more positive and love and all mm -hmm. this stuff. And then during the romantic period in the 17 and 1800s, they kind of took it upon them and they said, oh yeah, passion, love, like we're going to shift this to something that we want. So in the history of passion, you know, the 2000 years or so that the word has been around, you know, for the first, I don't know, 75% of its linguistic origin, it meant something negative and something to avoid, right? Mm. And something that was like, oh, wait a minute, passion. And then in the modern era, you know, we flipped it on its head completely. And it's like, this is the thing we should pursue. And I think that linguistic history captures the essence of what passion is about. And what we're struggling with, because as you just mentioned there in relationships, like passion can be amazing, but it can also, you know, lead to this blow up um, and that, you know, almost all of us have have experienced. And I think that's kind of the nuance of passion that makes it such an interesting kind of topic to dive into. As I read about that, I was like, whoa, it used to mean a bad thing. And now it's like, you know, you go to these commencement speeches are like, find your passion. It's going to do all this stuff for you. Right. So how do you discover your passion? Yeah. So that's a good question because we get told to do that all the time. Just like you said, like commencement speeches, go find your passion. Um, but I, I think what I, we found in both the research and then experience is that we go about doing it the wrong way. We almost have this like Disney kind of idea of passion in the sense that, you know, it's almost like Cinderella and Prince Charming. Once we find like what we're passionate about, like it's going to be magic and then we're going to know and then we're going to be set for life on our passion. And that's not how it works in the real world. What almost all the research shows is that when you adopt uh, what they call this fit, this uh, fit mindset, which is find your perfect passion, 
it backfires. It doesn't work. You you go into something and you think, oh, I'm super passionate, but inevitably, like reality hits and you're going to be slightly disappointed because nothing is perfect. And shortly, you're going to be like, oh, no, maybe this wasn't my true passion and you're going to quit. The research shows very clearly that instead, if you adopt a developed mindset, which is, hey, I don't know if I'm like this thing, this work I'm dabbling in is like my be all end all passion, but I'm going to try it. I'm going to dabble in it. I'm going to explore this interest to a deep degree and see if it grows just like in love. Yeah. You date. Yeah. You date, you know, and you try, you know, you date, you, you go on several dates. If someone sparks your interest, you know, you push it further and that love develops and grows as anybody, you know, as someone married for 13 years, like you can attest to this, it grows and develops into something that you never could have predicted on that first date. No. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the same thing happens in, in passion. And this is where we make the mistake so often is we think and we're told, go find your passion. When the reality, the advice we should g- give is go date, you know, go try different jobs, go try different hobbies, go try different interests. And you know what? If there's a spark, Go on more dates, develop it, like try deeper, like explore it, go, go deep on exploring that. And eventually what happens is with things that we're really, truly passionate about, it grows just like that love does. And over, you know, months and years, like it turns into this, um, this wonderful passion that we maybe couldn't have predicted, you know, the first day on our job. Yeah, I can speak to that myself. I mean, my passion has changed and I, you know, I know yours has. Is it okay? Do people feel guilty when their passion changes? A hundred percent. I mean, I, it's a normal thing to do because what happens is our passions and our identities kind of get intertwined, right? So we, you know, we we're passionate about our work and then all of a sudden our work starts to define who we are. And when those get intermingled, it can be really difficult to, you know, uh, step away and move on from that or change that. But the, the reality is, you know, just like you mentioned, shifting passions as we grow and develop and change as people is a normal thing. And we'd be better off if we acted more like, you know, when we were a kid. In the sense, if you remember back to when you're a kid, you know, in second grade, you might be obsessed with becoming a fireman. But then in third grade, you're like, forget that, man. I want to be, you know, I want to be part of the police or an astronaut or whatever have you. And you're still like for that brief period, like you're still like all in on that activity and love it. But you can you can move on from it once you find something. You know what? This is my interest now. And I think, you know, with passions, uh, that's incredibly important because the flip side is we can get cemented and trapped and think like, well, I've done this for the, this job for the past, you know, 10 years of my life and my college degree is in it. And this is all I know. And, you know, maybe your passion shifts and changes you've developed and, and you need to move to something else. Mm-hmm. And I think giving yourself the permission that that's okay um, is important. No, I think it's great. Um, I think I think I changed my major like three or four times in college, and I've recently had a huge career shift. But 
you know, it's, it's like an evolution that's happening. You know, it's like, it's kind of just becoming more and more and more refined. Once you find that passion, that thing that just excites you and you're like, okay, I want to put my effort in this. Is there a danger in going like all in, pushing all your chips in like, okay, this is it. And then just all in. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there definitely is. And, and that's the temptation, especially when you're a passionate person. Because you you sit there and you think like, okay, like this is what I really care about. This is what I'm really driven for. Um, what what I should do is just go all in because that means I care. That means like I'm dedicated if I go all in. But there's a danger in that because if you go all in, you're essentially making yourself fragile because you're going all in, which means your identity is now tied completely around this thing that you're pursuing. A lot of times your financial you know, resources and backing are tied completely to this thing that you're doing. So you start needing to like make this work. And yes, that, that can be a powerful motivator. But often what happens is that motivator shifts to, I need to do this because I can't fail, right? Mm. And you start being motivated out of a place of like prevention or fear of failure. And you know this from, you know, the world of sport. If you start, you know, playing not to lose instead of playing to win, things things start to go bad. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you see the same thing. And there's been some phenomenal research in the entrepreneurship field where it shows that actually those who adopt what's called a hybrid entrepreneurship, which means instead of going all in, they essentially dabble and test in the new thing, like try it out, see if, see if it can, you know, if their assumptions are right and try things for a little bit and then go all in once you've kind of proven your assumptions and said, okay, yeah, this can work. Like, yeah, this is what I want to do. Um, kind of the MVP stage. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Those companies fail at, I think one study found at a 33% less rate. Wow. We're so grateful to the Blueprints title sponsor, The Festive Kitchen. The zany creators at The Festive Kitchen set out to create the perfect sweet, salty, crunchy snack with just a little heat. After attempting numerous flavor combinations, they started sharing samples with family and friends who would ask, what is the name of this snack? Since there was no name, they answered, I don't know, but it's freaking awesome. Hilariously, the name stuck and a new product was born. It's a snack and it's freaking addicting called It's Freaking Awesome. You can order online now at shop.festivekitchen.com and itsfreakingawesome.com. Trust me, this snack is as cool as it sounds. Brace yourself. You'll be ordering frequently for your monthly freaking fix. The good news is they now have a freaking monthly subscription. Again, it's available at shop.festivekitchen.com and itsfreakingawesome.com. That's I-T-S-F-R-E-A-K-I-N awesome.com. So like the myth of like, I need to go all in, I need to like do this in order to be dedicated is just that. It's it's a myth. It's Mm. way more important to, again, strategically, incrementally, like test your ideas, assumptions, like see if it's a viable thing. And then like once you kind of make it over the mountain, you got that momentum, you know, going, then it's fine. Go all in at that point. Yeah. I've seen, you know, you ever watch the show Shark Tank? Yeah. I love it. But like sometimes these, these, um, 
entrepreneurs get just blasted. They're like, oh, you're not all, you're not full time. Like, what are you crazy? You know, like, well, I've got a family and multiple kids and that's why I'm here, you know? And I do think that there's a point in time where there, there is still risk and you have to evaluate that risk, but you got to go, okay, I, I literally can't take the next step unless I have 40 hours a week to work on this. And, um, but yeah, I'm, I'm a hundred percent with you. It makes total sense. You can get swayed by your emotions and make a very foolish decision. You talked about fragility. I know in the book you, you referenced Nassim Taleb, his barbell strategy. You want to talk about that for a second? Yeah, sure. I, I love the barbell strategy from Taleb, uh, which he talks about in anti-fragile, I believe, which is essentially you want to be on the two ends of the, the barbell right? Mm -hmm. You want to do a lot of stuff on one side, which is kind of this low risk and low, low payoff, but steady. And then you want to be on the other side, which is like higher risk, high reward. And you want to balance those two things out so that you're, you're in Talib's words, anti-fragile. You're not, you know, going all in on this high risk, high reward, because you've got this other side over here, which is this kind of low risk, low reward steadiness that, that kind of balances things out until you're ready to, to kind of move on mm -hmm. or move into that next phase. And I think that's a, another analogy that works really well with deciding, okay, how are you going to pursue these passions? When are you going to decide to go all in? Is like checking yourself, like where am I in terms of this barbell? And Taleb kind of shows that like a lot of times what happens is people get stuck in this middling ground, right? Mm. Where they do a bunch of stuff that is kind of really high risk, but not exactly a great payoff. And like, that's the most dangerous place to be. Hmm. Yeah. I love his book. I mean, I think it's fantastic. And he talks about developing anti-fragile systems where like, we're like a, an egg is fragile, right? You drop an egg and just shatters. You, you drop a rock, you know, you probably pressure to it. It's, you know, it just, it resists the human body adapts and it becomes better under the appropriate amount of stress. And, you know, if you kind of think about your investment portfolio, if you have, you know, just want to put everything in a money market account or, you know, a savings account, you also don't want to all go put it in like Bitcoin right now, like a hundred percent of it, the swings could kill you, you know? Um, so yeah, I think that's, that's a very wise, once you're kind of in this thing, what happens when you get obsessed with outcomes? Like your total focus is winning or making money or growing the business to X by this date. Like what's, is there positives, negatives to that? Yeah. So here there's, um, this, this is actually occurs quite frequently. Uh, we talked about passion being a jet fuel and that fuel is going to drive you. But like what direction it goes is, is kind of up to you. And in, in a lot of cases, what happens is passion starts as you're pursuing something because you want to, because you love it, because like the internal reward is there and you just, it brings you joy and contentment and excitement and it's a challenge. But as you kind of reach success, what often happens is that shifts mm -hmm. and you start to pursue your passion, what is called in the research obsessively. And this obsessive passion becomes just like what you said, where you start 
valuing the outcomes, the results. You're chasing those results no matter what. And the research, again, is very clear on this, is there's a lot of negative outcomes that comes around you because it shifts your mindset. It shifts from you're pursuing something because like it has inherent worth and brings you meaning and like helps whatever, you know, whatever you're trying to do to like the end goal is to perform well and performance is all that matters. Mm. Have you heard of OKRs? No. So it's an objective and a key objectives and key results. There's a book called measure what matters. Mm. And, um, I found that it kind of strikes the balance between the two. And what they talk about is, um, and some of the biggest companies came out of Intel, this whole idea. And so some of the biggest companies in the world now use it. Google, that Bono, believe it or not. But anyways, like the idea is like you have an objective and you can't set an objective unless it stretches you. Like it has to be like, oh, can I really get that done in the next quarter? Or unless it's it's not audacious enough, it's not going to push you and your team. But then you have key results, which is kind of like the process, which is like we believe that if we do these things, that we could achieve this. And if you didn't, you grade yourself at the end of the quarter or year or whatever. And it's like, if you hit 70% or greater of those key results, it's a winning, it's a, it's a success. Um, so it's kind of this balance between outcome and process. Like, and I know we, well, let's talk about process here a little bit. Cause like in my years in football, working for people like Jimbo Fisher, great coach, you know, process, process, Nick Saban, right? Like trust the process. Uh, you know, when I, Bill Belichick was do your job. As a matter of fact, when we played, when I was at the Texans, we played at New England. Like we played there way too many times. I don't know how the NFL set this up, but we played there like every time. And uh, they would chant like the whole stadium, do your job, do your job. But like, well, let's talk about the process then that leads to these outcomes that you desire. Yeah. You know, I, I love that idea. I'm going to have to check out that book. Oh, it's phenomenal. Yeah. It, it, it sounds like it. And, uh, you know, I, I adopt a similar mindset and I'm glad you brought up, brought this up because it's nuanced here. It's not that like being obsessed and like focusing on outcomes is necessarily bad. And then the, like being, you know, purely internally driven is necessarily great. You just want to be able to keep yourself in check because mm-hmm. it's extreme, right? It's the extreme when you go all in on, on outcome that, Again, research shows like once you're all in on outcome, you're more likely to cheat, do fraud, et cetera, because the outcome is all that matters. Performance enhancing drugs. You and I have both seen that. Yep, exactly. Outcome is all that matters. So it's like you're keeping yourself in check. Mm. And as far as the process, you know, my favorite way to look at this is pretty is pretty simple. And it's pretty similar to the book you just mentioned there, Process is set a goal that is just beyond your reach, right? Set a hard, audacious goal that is challenging, but like just within your grasp. Then figure out the steps that you need to get to that goal, right? Figure out what it takes to get there. And then forget the goal and do the steps, right? 
And, and that's what you're trying to balance there is it's, it's easy to, you know, just say process, 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 and that works. It does because the process is the steps to get there. And if you do the steps, you're more likely to get there. But like the goal sets the stage because the goal is that initial driver that says, hey, this is important to us as a company. This is important to us as a team. This is what we're striving to achieve. So it's important to understand and know that, but you just can't become obsessed with that. Mm. So the best way to do it is, again, in my head, like set it, make sure it's out there and then, you know, figure out the steps, forget that goal and then do the steps. I like that. That's it's basically the same thing. So some really smart people are all operating the same way. You know, I like it. You just forget the goal and just work on the steps. And that's really where this idea of mastery kind of comes into the picture. Um, and you, you do a, a really, I was going to say a masterful job of, of articulating this in your book, but let's talk about mastery. Cause I am one of the, 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 we call it an aspirational value for aim seven is that we want to be masters of our craft. So, and I, I just really connect with that word. So why don't we talk about that for a minute? Sure. And I think you, you nailed it there with craft is when you're looking at mastery, you're trying to be a craftsman, right? Which is, you know, trying to figure out how to do the best at what you're trying to do. And and I see it almost as a craftsman, like tinkering in the workshop because he loves to do it. So mastery, if you look at it, tons of definitions, but I kind of like narrowed it down into these kind of key components, which I think are the most important and quickly summarizing those. It's a lot of what we talked about, but it's like a drive from within, meaning mostly internally driven where it's like, you're doing the work, you have the intrinsic drive. Um, you're aware that success pulls you towards like this external extrinsic drive, the likes, the follows, the best, you know, the accolades, but you're, you kind of keep self-centered. Second thing, process, focusing on the process, which we talked about. Um, third thing is not being worried about being the best, but worrying at the being the best at getting better. Mm. So your job is to get better, right? You can't control if you're the best in the world or the best in the country or the best in your your sector. But what you can do is you can control is, are we making progress? Are we getting better? Are we doing setting systems in place that allows us to reach our potential? Uh, The fourth thing, which is, uh, again, incredibly important, is uh, accepting acute failure for chronic gains. So understanding that failure is part of the process, right? In sport, losing is part of it, right? Taking a beating is part of it. But what what matters is not that we fail. It's how we kind of see and respond to that. And if we can see things as failure as a challenge to improve ourselves instead of a threat at our uh, security or our ego, then that's the place we want to be. And then the last two things, which I think are important as well, is patience. Any being great at anything takes time. And then the last one is just be here now, which means like focus on the moment, like focus on what you can do and control like during this day, during this work period, and don't get caught looking behind you 
or looking ahead of you too much, like obviously you're going to look back and look forward, but like you always have to return to, okay, what am I supposed to do in this moment to get better, to improve? Mm, This is gold here. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Is there something interfering with your happiness or have you just not felt quite right lately? If you've paid attention to the Olympics, mental health is critical for being your best when it matters most. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can start communicating in just under 48 hours. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It's a professional therapy done securely online. There is a broad range of expertise available, which may not be locally available in many areas. The service is available for clients worldwide. You can log into your account anytime and send a message to your therapist. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions so you won't ever have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room as with traditional therapy. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches so they can make it easy and free to change therapists if needed. It's more affordable than traditional offline therapy and financial aid is available. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. Visit their website and read their testimonials as they are posted daily. Visit betterhelp.com forward slash blueprint. That's betterhelp.com forward slash blueprint and join the over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional therapists in all 50 states. This is a special offer for Blueprint podcast listeners. Get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com forward slash blueprint. Do you believe that talent needs trauma? Yes. Um, There is some fascinating research. A lot of it started in the sporting world, but it essentially said that if you look at those who make it, you know, at the highest level, the, you know, who make it in the the NBA or win championships or the premier league or win Olympic medals, like those who tend to go through some sort of trauma and trauma is wide, right? We're not just talking like abuse or something horrible like that. We're talking about like they go through some really tough times that test them early on, could be injuries, could be family related, could be anything. Um, They tend to make it. They tend to persevere and make it to the top versus similarly talented athletes who didn't have to go through adversity at the youth level or growing up and developing. And, And the reason for that is pretty simple. It's because, you know, adversity challenges us to grow. And a lot of times what it does is it challenges us deep down to focus on and remember what matters to us and to ask the question, Hey, is this passion that I'm pursuing? Does this matter to me? Like, where does this fit in my life? Am I, do I still want to pursue it? And then make that decision to say a lot of times, yes, I do. And here's why. It's 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 very similar in, in some cases to what we're all going through right now, which you mentioned at the beginning, you know, with everyone kind of quitting their jobs. Well, why do we do that? It's because we all went through a big trauma, which forces reflection where you sit there and say, hey, like, is this really what I want to do? 
And some people double down and say, yes, like this is what I'm meant to be. Let's go. And other people step back and say, you know what? This other thing over here, I'm going to pursue that because like this has meaning and this trauma, this experience has forced me to reflect on what matters. And this over here is what matters. So going through moments like that are incredibly, incredibly important for our our development. Amen. I mean, I quit <laughs> during the pandemic. Um, it it gave us time. You're sitting there going, like you had time, and you're like, okay, the whole world is pretty much stopped. Do I really like what I'm doing? Could I have a bigger impact? Um, is this the best situation for my family? For those around me, do I really need money? Like, like, do I really need X amount of dollars? Could I do with less? I think a lot of people were like, I like being around my family. Like, I like seeing my kids. Like I told my wife, my, our youngest or our middle son just went to kindergarten. I was like the past two years, I got to see him grow up. Like I didn't my oldest son. And now we have a one-year-old who's at home and every day, I mean, there's a little times throughout the day that I just get to play with him and be around him. Uh, it doesn't make things less stressful, but like, I know that I'm going to be a better father <clears throat> because of that. Um, oh, this is great. I want to kind of switch gears a little bit here for just a second, but you know, you've coached Olympians, you've coached world-class athletes. Um, and that's really where your earlier books originated from what are your thoughts on this idea of mental toughness yeah you know this is one of uh one of my favorite topics and i'm working on a book project on this right now let's go next podcast that's right we'll we'll be on your book tour (laughs) but you know i think we have a fundamental misunderstanding for what mental toughness is because we have almost what I call this old school model, which toughness means like stoic, like pay, play through the pain, you know, ignore your emotions, like no crying in baseball, just like push through and persevere no matter what. And I don't think that's what toughness is because I think what toughness is, is pretty simple is when we are faced with discomfort or adversity, It is having the space to decide what path you go, to make a decision. Because the tough decision often isn't push through the pain. That's often the simplest decision, right? Because if I'm an athlete and I really care, like you've been there as an athlete and as a coach, like the athletes always want to push through. They always want, almost always want to get up and like, no coach, like, let me go back in the game. Like, let me keep, let me try again, even though I'm injured because they're driven. That's what they care about. But the tough decision is sitting there with that discomfort and, and creating that space and saying, okay, like, what's the best path? Like, what is the best path? And the example I like to give is this, is if you talk to world-class mountaineers and climbers, right? They're climbing up. They're trying to reach Everest. They're trying to reach Everest. They see, they, they get to a couple hundred meters from the top, the peak. And what do they have to do in that moment? The easy decision is the peak is almost there. I'm an hour out, right? If I just push a little bit more, I'm going to accomplish a goal that 
few people on this earth in history have accomplished. But they have to sit there in that moment and say, and be self-aware to say, hey, do I have the energy to make it down? Because the majority of climbing deaths occur on the way back down, not on the way up, on the way down. Because people push too far, they don't have the oxygen, the energy to make it down the, the mountain safely, especially these extreme cases. And that right there is the toughest decision. The tough decision in that is to have the self-awareness to step back and be like, I could make it to the top, but reading my body, like I don't have the energy. I need to turn around right now to make it down so that I can like be there and see my children grow up and grow up and be there for my family. And even though I, I've trained for months and years to accomplish this goal and I've wanted nothing else in my life more than this, you know, in this moment, I got to turn around because... So it requires a little wisdom. Yeah, exactly. So can you be tough at everything or is it, is it like something that's like you can only like task specific, like you have to develop some specificity or can you just be tough to anything in your life? I think the, the principles apply across your life. So I think if you are tough on the athletic field and you learn those principles, you can then learn or train yourself to apply them to other aspects of your life. But there's specificity in the training, right? Because different situations, the discomfort I feel when I'm running a marathon, well, it's high discomfort. It's different. It's a different kind of nuance than the discomfort I might feel while uh, in the boardroom making my pitch for like investment seed money that decides if my company makes it or not. Like they're both very tough, very discomforting places, but like they bring about like different nuance where you have to understand how to navigate those situations differently. Yeah. Over the years, I just, you know, I'm just going to go ahead and say it. We would do these stupid 6 a.m. conditioning sessions, right? And it would be like, you know, this is what's going to be the thing that's going to help us win championships. I'm like, no, it won't. And like, you know, and, and, and I thought, you know, I started thinking one day, I was like, how many NFL teams do this? Zero. And then when I was in the NFL, it definitely never happened. It was all between the ears. And it was like, can you do your job? Can you execute under crucible situations and have the psychological flexibility to make the right decision? And um, and it was interesting to me as I would see these guys, some of these guys that I'm like, you're an NFL player? There's guys that were better looking than you, like in college, but in between the ears, like they could make those refined decisions. And that was toughness in that environment. And I think we, we get, yeah, doing like if you're in the military and like you're going to go through Navy SEAL training, they're, they're hardening you for some very difficult traumatic experiences that you're going to have. Maybe death, maybe you get, maybe you got to go on a ruck for 20 something miles to insert somewhere and crazy stuff happens. But that doesn't mean that to get your corporation to where it needs to be that you need to do log PT. 
We're going to take a break for just a moment to talk about how you can get exclusive content designed just for high performers like you. If you're looking for information and resources to improve your health, well-being, and performance, then sign up for my free high-performance newsletter, Adaptation. Just go to www.ericcorum.com and sign up now. This newsletter is my effort to bring zero-cost, high-performance resources and tools to anyone with the desire to improve. And now, back to the show. So I love this example because it's the specificity, right? Yeah. So, Sorry, I just... <laughs> no, no, it's it's great because yeah. the Navy SEALs, here's where people make the mistake. The Navy SEAL, like people see the Navy SEALs and all these military people, which is great. I've talked to a bunch of them, tough guys, but they see all these, this extreme stuff, right? And they say, oh, that's the key to toughness. No, they are inoculating themselves to things that they are likely or are potentially going to face. You know, they have to do those sorts of things because that is the rigor of the job they're they're going to face that they're going to do. They are conditioning themselves. If I'm a, you know, a middle manager at some place, like I'm never going to face like what it's like to be awake for, you know, 48 hours while marching, you know, 15 miles with, you know, 60 pounds on my back and like carrying teammates. Like it's different, you know? <laughs> and the, the other thing that I'll say, and if you look at the, the training of all US military elite, like special forces, is they don't just put them through difficult things. They teach them what to do and how to mentally handle those different difficult things. Mm -hmm. They have, you know, training courses and classroom courses where they go through all the mental skills needed. And this is what you're going to face. And when you face like simulated torture, which they're essentially going to Seer school. Yep. Seer school. When you go through that, like they go through, they have manuals, they teach you, here's how, here's how you cope. Here's what you should do. Here's what, you know, mental skills you need to develop. And they develop those skills and then put them through simulations so that they can try and train them for the tasks that they need to do. I was really privileged to be a part of this lecture in DC, a very small closed room deal with a guy that's head of psychological stuff for the army. And, um, he, uh, just, he was like, look, I've done all these things. Cause when you want to be in that community, you have to do certain things to get into the community. And one of the things was jump school. And he's like, I'm a, you know, psychologist, but he's like, little me went to Fort Benning, Georgia. And I don't know if you've ever been there, but it's a pretty cool deal. They have a jump school. So like if you took this really ridiculous Navy SEAL and put him at the edge of this plane, it's, and he's never jumped out of a plane and said, jump, what do you think the physiological response is going to be? Sheer terror, right? Well, he's tough. Yeah. Well, he's not tough to that because he has, doesn't have the skill. Well, now you take him, you go to Fort Benning, Georgia, let's say in the army and they like start with just like how to land, how to land and roll, how to jump into a pit. And then they slowly raise you up into this tower that's 200 and something feet off the ground. And then over several, three, four weeks, then you go do your five jumps, but they inoculate you to that stress. And so I'm, I am so thankful that you're writing a book about this and I will shout it to the, <laughs> to the ends of the earth. I just wish there was there, there should be curriculum for stuff like this for coaches, but instead it's this mentor apprenticeship approach. And if so-and-so did it, then that means it works. 
Exactly. I'm a hundred percent with you. It's, it's one of, you know, when you've been in the athletic realm for so long, it's one of my deepest pet peeves is this, you know, these wrong ideas that have been around for decades, thanks to this, like, you know, mentorship apprentice model instead of, as you showed, like listening to what both the science says and what the people like, you know, the special forces are actually doing. So Steve, you yourself have recently gone all in. You know, let's talk. You want to talk about that? Sure. So as you know, we've talked about and hinted, my background is in uh, athletic coaching, track mm-hmm. and field. You know, it's what sport I love, sport I grew up doing, sport I've coached for the last, you know, over a decade of my life. And your tweets during the Olympics have been epic, by the way. <laughs> Thanks. You know, it's again, it's a passion. It's something I love. Uh, and I've, I've spent a long time learning about. But, you know, similar to the realization you've had, right? Where you've been at home during the pandemic, you know, spend time with family. The, the, the college coaching job is, is just like that. You're always on the road. You're always doing stuff. It's crazy work hours, um, just like many jobs. But I came to the realization that like, you know, as I make transitions in my life, I'm now married, we're planning family, all that stuff. Like it doesn't fit well with what we want to do. So, you know, what's happened is I've kind of hopefully on purpose, but also sort of accidentally followed what's in the passion paradox Mm -hmm. is I wrote my first book in uh, science of running in 2014. I wrote uh, my first non kind of running book, but still athletic to a degree peak performance in 2017. And it was really 2017 when I wrote Peak Performance where in the back of my head, I'm like, you know what? I didn't ever see myself as a writer and you know, exploring these ideas, but it's really fun. Like, I'm going to kind of dabble in this more and write more and see what's going on. And for the past three, you know, four years, I've done that. And then 2019 came out with Passion Paradox. And it's just grown and grown and grown and taken up more of my time. And hopefully over, again, three books, you know, coming up on four, I've proven my concept of, well, I can do this. I've got the chops, like I enjoy it. Mm-hmm. So I've got, I've gone all in, you know, I'm no longer coaching collegiately. And, you know, just going all in on exploring some of these ideas in writing form and lecture form and, and helping people as best I can with, you know, how to, how to navigate some of these difficult topics. I love it. This is super exciting. And and you and I are in the both, both in Houston. So we're going to have to hook up and hang out. Um, I asked my guests three questions on every podcast. Okay. What does high performance mean to you? High performance means to me it is it's pretty simple. It's, it's doing your job to the best of your ability and whatever potential that is. Doesn't matter whether that's world-class, doesn't matter if that's Fortune 500 company, it is doing the best that you can do in the endeavor that you're taking on. I love it. Simple and very true. So what habits or practices have you adopted to help you consistently perform at your best? So the big thing for me is routine and environment. So... I'm a routine-based guy, especially now that I've gone all in. 
is first thing I do, I get up, I go for a run because that's my exercise moment. Gets my day started, gets me outdoors, seeing the sun wakes me up. And then, uh, you know, from there, not to go through the whole routine, but I have a routine after that. When do I do my best like writing? When do I do my best thinking? When do I do my best creative work? And yeah, life gets in the way and I don't always be... I'm not super strict on it, but I have these in the back of my head so that I'm setting myself up to, to perform in similar environment, you know, with cell phones, distractions, Twitter, social media, gosh, it can be easy to just spend hours doing nothing. Mm -hmm. So when I sit down to write or I sit down to work, my phone is off in the bedroom far away on silent, right? My computer, my internet is is turned off, turned turn off the Wi-Fi. And sometimes I have to turn off the Wi-Fi to the house when <laughs> I, it's me alone. Cause that happens. So it's but I'm aware that I'm human and like I fall for these things. So I just try to set up the environment around me best I can so that I can get work done. I love it. What are you doing right now to invest in your personal growth? Right now, you know, that's a that's a good question because it's it's a transition period. And honestly, what I've tried to do over the past couple of weeks is connect with friends, colleagues, and family more. Because when I've been in the rat race and focused on my job and all that stuff, it's very easy to go, okay, I need to do this, and then like look to the next thing. I need to do this, I need to do that. And you forget and neglect the things that you take advantage for or advantage of. So what I've tried to do is just over the past couple of weeks is, you know, um, three to four times a week, I just sit down, call up a friend or colleague that I haven't talked to in a while and just talk and get some ideas and, you know, see how people are doing because that connection and that belonging both from a professional and personal side. I mean, it's invaluable. And I think it's something the modern world kind of takes away from us at sometimes. I love it. How can people find and support you, Steve? Yeah. So the best way is on social media, Instagram, Twitter, I'm at Steve Magnus. And then for the work I do in all of my books, I'm at thegrowtheq.com or stevemagnus.com. Yeah, I just I saw your the website. I thought that was pretty sweet. I'm going to have to dig into that a little bit more. Um, Steve, this has been fantastic. And when the new book on mental toughness comes out, please come back on the show and let's go real deep into that. Okay, you got it. 100%. Thank you so much for your time today. Thanks a lot for having me. If today's podcast enriched your life in any way, please support The Blueprint by sharing this podcast with someone you think could benefit from today's conversation. Also, please consider checking out the Festive Kitchen's amazing product. It's freaking awesome. It makes for a fantastic gift for a colleague, friend, or a loved one, or as a freaking fun snack when you want something sweet and savory to tantalize your taste buds. Thanks for listening. You can find more episodes and all of our other Hot Pie Media Originals Baked fresh daily at our home online at hotpiemedia.com, the Hot Pie Media YouTube channel, or wherever you listen to podcasts.